Amen. Amen. Now the Spirit of God inhabits the praises of His people. What a joy it is to worship together. And uh, this morning, um, we're going to continue on in our series on cultural harmony. And um, last week, we we talked some about unconditional love. And the week before that, we talked about uh, grace-filled living and uh, what that looks like. Today, I want to talk a little bit about biblical marriage. And um, I'm trying my best to keep all this G-rated, so um, let me know um, how we do. But uh, cultural harmony, you know, the biblical concept of marriage is under attack in our society today. The, the concept of biblical marriage. You know, our entertainment-saturated society helps feed all sorts of illusions about reality. You know, the fantasy of the perfect romantic and sexual relationship, the, the perfect lifestyle, the, the perfect body, if you will, all prove unattainable because the reality never lives up to the expectation. See, the worst fallout comes in the marriage relationship because when two people can't live up to each other's expectations, they'll look for their fantasized satisfaction in the next relationship, in the next experience, in the next excitement. But understand this, that that path leads to self-destruction and to emptiness. And if you are here this morning, I want you to understand something. I'm not the authority on this. I'm, I'm doing the best I can in my own marriage uh, to, to honor God and to honor my wife. And so I hope that you will be doing the same and if, if you are, um, have been involved in, in divorce or have been shattered and feel the pain of that, I want you to understand I am not in any way sitting in judgment. I understand the pain and the shatteredness of that and um, with all the care and the compassion and the love, I want you to know that I desire to be that healing for you. This morning, what we're doing is we're putting the, raising the bar, if you will, and putting out what is the biblical concept of marriage, of how God intended it. And um, just understand that, that, you know, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior. But understand this this morning, that marriage Marriage belongs to God. Marriage belongs to God. It's his first divine institution. It's a most intelligent design. He came up with it. Marriage is the capstone of the family, the the building block of human civilization. And any society that does not honor and protect marriage undermines that society's very existence. Because one of God's designs for marriage is to show the next generation how a husband and wife demonstrate reciprocal and sacrificial love to each other. To be able to show that to the next generation. See, when husbands and wives forsake that love, the give and take, the the, the sacrificial, unconditional love, their marriage fails to be what God intended. And when marriage fails, 
the whole family falls apart. When the family falls and fails, the the whole society suffers. And the stories of our suffering and the brokenness in our society, they are on the headlines all the time in our nation. Every day. And so now more than ever is the time for Christians to declare and to put on display what the Bible declares that God's standard for marriage and for the family is the only standard that can produce real meaning, true happiness, and genuine fulfillment. See, many, many want to believe that the monogamous two-parent family was invented in the 1950s, you know, with that TV show, Ozzie and Harriet, and, and, and what their relationship looks like. But understand that Adam and Eve are the original family. Adam and Eve are God's ideal family. He's the one who created them. Folks, this isn't polygamy. This isn't having a concubine. This isn't keeping uh, uh, mistresses. This isn't adultery. This isn't homosexual cohabitation. This isn't promiscuity. This isn't living together outside the bonds of marriage. This isn't serial marriage. This is God's ideal family. All of those other things are what humanity has made marriage into. I'm saying this is what God's ideal is. He is the one who created it. It is, it is, it is up to us to, to raise that bar. This is, this is his ideal for the family. And even when we don't live up to it, it's still important for us to put it out there as this is God's plan. Even though our society doesn't want to see that, even though lost people act like lost people. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to put forth God's ideal. See, early on in the book of Genesis, we find God's design for marriage. And I want to read a few verses here in Genesis chapter 2 and uh, verses 18 through 25. If you have your scripture and want to open up to that, this is what it says. Verse 18 and following says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man 
and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. And Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit even now would examine our hearts. And Father, we know that we fall short every day. But Father, I pray that you would find willing hearts to be willing to be willing to do what you ask in our marriages, in our homes, in our relationships. Father, show us the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, this text describes the original meaning and is the basis for almost everything else in the scriptures that is teaching about marriage. It explains God's reason for designing marriage and gives us some very great principles which if applied will enable us to build marriages which honor God and bring lasting joy to us. See, the text teaches us that God designed marriage. He designed marriage to meet our need for companionship, but also to provide a picture of our relationship with him. I mean, think about this. When you read in Genesis 1 and 2, the words of verse 18 hit kind of abruptly. You know, when, it, when he, it, it, I love this because it says, it is not good for the man to be alone. God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And throughout chapter one, God surveys his work and he pronounces it good. And this is the first time that God says that something in his creation is not good. Everything else he has pronounced as being good and very good. But here he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Think about it. Here's a sinless man. He's in fellowship, in the perfect fellowship with God. He's in the perfect environment. I mean, what more could you want? Isn't that enough? But not according to to God. God's evaluation was that the man needed a human companion to correspond to him. You know, sometimes (laughs) super spiritual people, they say that if you're lonely, that maybe there's something wrong in your spiritual life. Here we have a perfect man in a perfect environment, in perfect fellowship with God, And God sees something that is lacking. See, God acknowledges our need not only for fellowship with him, but also for fellowship with a companion. And this is not to say that every person needs to be married. That's not what it's saying. I mean, everyone spends many years of their life as a single person. I mean, God has even called some, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, to remain single. Nor is it to say that marriage will meet all of our need for companionship. I mean, married folks need friends too. But it is to say that a main reason that God designed marriage was to meet the human need for companionship. And so very first off, we have to affirm that marriage is God's design, that God designed marriage. I don't care what they call it out in the world. 
God is the one who designed marriage. And that means that he knows best, that he knows how it should operate, that how it's supposed to work. His word gives us the principles that we need for great marriages. And since God designed marriage, it takes three to make an amazing marriage. It takes God, it takes the woman, and it takes the man. It takes all three of those to make a wonderful marriage. See, for a Christian to marry an unbeliever is not only to disobey God, it is to enter marriage lacking something that is essential. Because both parties, the man, the husband, and the wife need to have a relationship with the Lord. It's God's design that they be in fellowship with him, but also with each other. See, as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they experienced alienation from each other. And then Adam began blaming Eve for his problems. See, broken marriages always involve at least one spouse moving away from God. So the starting place for having a marriage according to God's design is genuine conversion, okay? Being connected genuinely to God through his son, but also having a daily walk with him and with each other. Notice that God says here that he will make Adam a helper suitable for him. Verse 18. Now understand The Hebrew word here for helper is not demeaning in any way. In our society, we kind of think, well, I'm just a helper. And somehow we might think that is a demeaning kind of term, but it's not meant that way in the Hebrew text. See, this same word, a helper, is often used for God's help. God's help in someone's distress. God's help in a military assistance. And so when you think about that, I mean, it's like Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That's the kind of help that is talked about here. It's God's help. It's that kind of, and when he says, uh, I, I will make a helper suitable for him. So in the marriage relationship, God created woman to be a perfectly suitable helper to the man. Understand, this means that God gave the plan and the agenda to Adam and he and Eve together work to fulfill it. See, we usually only see helping as a position of inferiority when we think like the world thinks. But see, that's not what God is doing here. God considers positions of service as most important in his sight. Well, we don't want to just be a helper. Yeah, we do. We want to be a helper. I mean, think about this. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus put it this way. Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Positions of service are very important in God's economy. It even points to the fact that the husband needs and often and even depends on his wife's support and help. I mean, the fact that God created the woman as a helper points to her supportive role to her husband, even before the fall. But at the same time, there's no basis for the view that men are superior to women. I mean, God made the woman to be a helper suitable for, corresponding to the man. And the picture is that the woman is the missing part of the man. As a jigsaw puzzle is incomplete with half the pieces missing, so is a man incomplete without his wife. That's why God said it is not good for the man to be alone. See, God designed it so the man needs the woman and the woman needs the man. And both are equal persons and yet have distinct roles to fill. I mean, why didn't God create Adam and Eve simultaneously? Why didn't he just put them together? Why didn't he just speak them into being? Why didn't he form them at the same time? You see, before God created Eve, he put Adam to work (laughs) through the exercise of naming all the other animals. I think God had a lesson to teach Adam. See, by naming all the other animals... Adam discovered that every animal that God had created, for every animal there was a male and a female. And so after going through this, you know, several dozen cases, how many ever, you know, male and female aardvarks and down through the alphabet or whatever, male and female zebras, Adam got to the end of the list and he said, hey, I wonder, where's mine? Male and female, where's mine? And the forlorn note that we read here, verse 20, and it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. You see, God made Adam feel the need for a wife first. And Moses' description here, as he writes this and, um, you know, describing the creation of ease is a bit surprising when you stop and think about it. It says that God fashioned a woman from man's rib. That God fashioned a woman from man's rib. Fashioned is literally the word built. Built. He built the woman from the man's rib. It's the verb pictures God as a sculptor who's carefully, deliberately shaping the woman into a creature who would meet Adam's need. And since she was built by God, you could say that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, she was a beauty. Oh, my goodness. I mean, verse 22 indicates that Adam didn't wake up to find Eve lying beside him. I mean, rather, God brought her to him. Can you imagine this? Picture Adam. He's laying there, you know, waking up, trying to figure out why he's got this funny feeling in his side. He's counting his ribs when he hears God say, Adam, you forgot to name one creature. And Adam looks up 
and to see Eve, not in a wedding dress, but Eve is naked. I'm not making this stuff up. That's in the text. And we know that she was a knockout because of Adam's response. I mean, these are the first recorded words of the first man. And they were, they were not quite as mild as the various translations indicate. A literal, more literal rendering of the original Hebrew is, all right. <laughs> I mean, the phrase, this is now bone of my bones. This is now really means that Adam is saying, here now, this one at last. Remember, Adam had been looking through all the animals for that one corresponding to him. And he had come up empty. And when God brought Eve to him, he said, yes. I mean, right? He made one for Adam. He made someone for Adam to correspond to him. And next, Adam promptly finished his work of naming the creatures. He recognized that Eve was part of him and named her accordingly. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she came from man, Ish. Ish is the Hebrew word for man. Isha is the Hebrew word for woman. God had brought her to Adam as his exquisitely crafted gift, perfect for Adam's need. See, these verses teach us something important about God. God is not opposed to our enjoyment of sex within the bonds of marriage. He designed it. He gave it to Adam and Eve. You know, Satan tries to malign the goodness of God. He's for everything that God gives, for every good gift that God gives, the enemy creates a counterfeit to try and, 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 and mimic that or, or, or whatever, but he tries to malign the goodness of God by making us think that God is trying to take away our fun by restricting sexual activity to marriage. That's not true. But God knows it creates major problems in our lives when that happens outside the bonds of marriage. See, we need to regard marriage and Sex in marriage as God's good gift designed for pleasure to meet our needs for human companionship. And in the context of marriage, we can thankfully enjoy what God has given. See, God designed marriage to meet our need for companionship. Look at verse 24. This is Moses' commentary. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. But Adam didn't have a father and he didn't have a mother because God created him. And what he's saying is, is for this reason means because of the way God designed marriage from the start, because a woman came from the, the bone of, of a man's rib bone and, and, and flesh of his flesh, these things hold true. He shows us that to fulfill our need for companionship, it requires that a marriage must be the primary relationship. The primary relationship means that it's, it's most important. It's the very first priority. I think this is huge because a man must leave his father and mother and, 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 and must be established with his wife, cleave to his wife, and they establish one flesh relationship together. This means that the marriage relationship is primary. 
not the parent-child relationship, but the marriage relationship between husband and wife is primary. And what he's saying here is the parent-child relationship must be altered before the marriage relationship can be established. The cord, folks, has to be cut between the parent and the child in order that, that the son or the daughter can go and cleave to their spouse and the two can become one flesh. Doesn't mean you abandon your parents, doesn't mean you cut off contact with them. It means that a person needs to have enough emotional maturity to break away from the dependence of his parents if they're going to enter marriage. See, I would say also that companionship requires that marriage must be a permanent relationship. It needs to be the primary relationship, but it also needs to be permanent. I mean, it follows that this from being the primary relationship, your children are with you in the home for a few years. And it seems like they go by very quickly. For some of you, it might seem like it's taken longer. I know, I've been there. But your spouse is with you for life. Cleave means to cling to, to hold on to as bone to skin. And it means to be glued to something so that when you're married, <laughs> you're stuck. In a good way. You're stuck. You cleave to one another. You hold fast to one another. You don't break it off. It needs to be a permanent relationship. Even after Jesus quoted this passage, he added, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Being stuck together. This means that the marriage relationship must be built primarily on commitment and not on feelings of romantic love. It's a covenant before God. And that commitment is what holds a couple together through the difficulties and the storms that life brings. So it's a primary relationship, it's a permanent relationship. It's also an exclusive relationship. Marriage must be an exclusive relationship. Notice in verse 24, it doesn't say, it, it says, um, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It doesn't say to his wives. Monogamy is God's design. One man, one woman for life. God could have easily created many wives for Adam, but he didn't. He created one wife, one man, one woman for life. That's God's design. And guys, that means that when you get married, you have a new relationship with your wife. And she is your number one priority in terms of human relationships. And if you can't handle that, then you aren't mature enough for the demands of marriage. And ladies, don't settle. If he ain't mature enough, don't settle. It needs to be an exclusive relationship. Primary, permanent, exclusive, and it must also be intimate. It says here that the two shall become one flesh. And one flesh emphasizes the sexual union. But folks, the sexual union is more than just physical. There is something that happens there, the relational, the emotional oneness as well. And many sexual problems in marriage stem from a failure for total person intimacy. Guys, we don't want to open up. We don't share with them everything. And they don't feel as intimate with us. 
You see, we've got to have this oneness all, all across the board. Yes, physically, but also emotionally and, 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 and in every other way, intellectually, we need this oneness, this personal intimacy. Sexual harmony must be built on the foundation of primary, permanent, exclusive relationship. And that means a relationship that is growing in trust and in oneness. That's what it means when the two become one flesh. See, if you remove sex from the context of marriage commitment, Oh, you will experience a superficial sense of closeness. But you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? He says that even when a man has sex with a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her. You see, apart from the lifelong commitment of marriage, sex will never bring the satisfaction that God designed it to do. Apart from that commitment, apart from that exclusive relationship, apart from that uh, permanent relationship, because you see, sin always hinders intimacy, even in marriage. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they recognized their nakedness and they began to hide themselves not only from God, but from each other. To the extent that we deal with our sin before God and with one another and grow in holiness, we will grow in personal intimacy. See, that's what it takes. Confessing our sin before God, growing in holiness to him, and growing towards each other. Good marriages aren't the result of finding the right partner. They're the results of couples who work daily walking openly and humbly before God and before each other. That's what makes a great marriage, is walking with God every single day with openness and humbly before him and walking with openness and humbly with your mate. See, but God didn't design marriage just so we could be happy and have our needs met. He also designed marriage to be a testimony for him. I mean, godly marriages bear witness to what it means to know God. In the Bible, God created marriage for a bigger purpose than itself. Marriage is a picture of the believer's relationship with God. Think about that. How does your marriage depict your relationship with God? See, marriage is that earthly picture of a spiritual relationship that, be- that is going on between us and Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the church, his bride. The consummation of a marriage is referred to in the Bible as a man knowing his wife. And see, we can know Christ. We can know him intimately. A husband and a wife are one flesh. We are one spirit in the Lord. And just as the the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife is to be subject to her husband. As Christ loves the church, the husband is to love the wife. And just as a marital union results in children, so also our relationship with Christ, our union with the Lord and his church is to result in many offspring for God's glory. See, that's why it's important for us to work in developing a Christ-honoring relationship with your spouse. You're working on a portrait of Christ and the church and the world's looking over your shoulder while you're doing that. 
As I, as I bring this in for a landing, as I wrap this up, I just want to say this. If you're single today and you're content to, to remain single, then God's word to you this morning is use your single state to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord and to his work. If you're single and you desire to be married, then God's word to you this morning is be growing in godliness and purity and pray and look for a spouse who's committed to do the same. Because your lifelong marriage, your lifelong relationship must be centered on God so that the world can see a picture of Christ in the church through your marriage. This morning, if you're married to an unbeliever, I mean, God's word to you is when your spouse without a word by your godly character and behavior. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3. If you're married, God's word to you this morning is are you growing deeper in companionship with your spouse? Are the two of you moving closer together and closer to God as you move in this marriage? Is your marriage growing in a way that reflects Christ and his church to this selfish, pleasure-seeking, lost world? See, if you can't honestly answer yes, then it ought to be like a warning light going off on the dashboard that you're not in line with God's design for your marriage. Marriages don't run on autopilot. They take a lot of attention and a lot of work. But don't wait. Take immediate action to get your marriage back on track with God. Don't just let it run. See, by God's grace and your commitment, you can have a marriage that honors him and honors your spouse and meets your needs. You know, really, I feel like as we move towards a time of response, God is looking for willing hearts. This is his plan for, for marriage. It's a biblical marriage. But we all fall short of God's glory. But are you willing? Are you willing to do what God is asking you to do concerning that? Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. And I ask, Father, that this morning that you would move us from where we are to where you desire us to be. Holy Spirit, we know that we all fall short of your glory. We all fall short of what you intended. But I ask, Father, that you would give us willing hearts. That, Father, when you reveal to us where we fall short, Father, when you, when you reveal to us where we need forgiveness, Father, when you reveal to us where we need just to confess to you, Father, to own it and to tell on ourselves to you, I pray, Father, that we would do that out of obedience to Jesus Christ. Father, that times of refreshing, that forgiveness can come, that repentance will be ours. Father, we've made a terrible mess of what you created as something very, very good. 
Father, I pray that you would break our hearts. Father, I know that in many hearts, the enemy has shattered their hearts through divorce. There's been lots of pain. Father, we all fall short. But I ask today that forgiveness would be ours. And God, that we could move together in the wholeness that you desire. May it be for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.